Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, a podcast by the Perennial Leader Project. On today's episode, my guest is Nate Anderson, the author of the new book, In Emergency, Break Glass, What Nietzsche Can Teach Us About Joyful Living in a Tech-Saturated World. Nate is the Deputy Director at Ars Technica and writes about technology law and policy. In the conversation, Nate and I discuss why Nietzsche is an important figure today, how Nietzsche can help us move forward in the information age, what we can learn about finding meaning, the wisdom of walking, how to love life in spite of everything, wisdom in daily life, and so much more. I really enjoyed this one and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Nate Anderson. Nate, welcome to In Search of Wisdom. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. There are not that many people that want to talk about Nietzsche. I love it. Well, this new book that you have titled In Emergency, Break Glass, What Nietzsche Can Teach Us About Joyful Living in a Tech-Saturated World, I'm really excited to talk about. I haven't done too uh, too many episodes on on Nietzsche, so this is exciting, I think, for myself and the listeners. But what led you to write the book, Nate? I was a philosophy major in college, and I never got to Nietzsche. So he was always one of those people who was a gap in my education. And, you know, when I finally decided to remedy that gap a few years ago, because, you know, I just kept seeing his face everywhere, his slogans appear on all these products on Etsy shops, like the man is a force to be reckoned with. I I need to know more about this. And as I dove into his, his work, I was really struck by what it had to say to our current technological moment and how he was a voice really different from many of the voices you hear today, um, critiquing, arguing, thinking about technology. He's sort of, he provides us a framework for thinking about some of these issues, but from a really different perspective. And I think that's what grabbed me. And I thought, I want to explore this. And I think Nietzsche's got something to say to us today. Thinking about some of his titles in in technology, this phrase that we have today of uh, maybe a clickbait title, wouldn't you say some of some of his book titles are are definitely clickbait? He was certainly, I mean, the, the most exciting German philosopher I've ever read. If you've spent time reading someone like Hegel or Kant, you know, coming to Nietzsche is it's like a bomb going off. Um, <laughs> it's dynamic. It's passionate. Um, he he desperately wanted to be read, and he desperately had things he wanted to say, and had a fairly tragic life. But it resulted in this fascinating prose that is still compulsively readable uh, 130 years later. So what would you say for someone listening that might not be familiar with Nietzsche? What's a a brief overview of why he's, uh, you know, an important figure today? So just a few biographical things to know about Nietzsche is he was a genius as a kid. And he went off to university in Germany in the mid 1800s. Uh, studied with some of the best thinkers of his day, became a real expert in classical Greek and Greek culture, 
and was given a essentially a tenured chair at the University of Basel without even writing a dissertation, just on the recommendation of his advisor. Uh, so Nietzsche's sort of this amazing young professor. Um, he goes to Basel, begins teaching students, but then he starts writing really strange books. Like his first one is on Apollo and Dionysus, and his colleagues are like, what is this? This is not what we expected from you. Students stopped coming to his lectures. Uh, it got so bad that there were only a couple people showing up to his courses. Nietzsche became increasingly dissatisfied in his 20s and into his early 30s with the academic life he found there. He, he was just fed up with people who he thought spent all their time among books and libraries and had forgotten how to live. And I think he saw that in himself. He, he felt himself becoming that way and didn't like it. And this was coupled by with the fact that he was fairly ill all his life. He had conditions that people still argue about today, and they were getting worse and worse. So he was often down on his back, in bed, vomiting, fevers, headaches, uh, wore an eye shade when he walked around town to keep the sun out of his eyes. And he eventually, these two things sort of combined, and he eventually decides he needs to leave this all behind, both for his health, but also because of the environment around him. And so he quits. Um, he spends the rest of his sane life wandering around Europe on a very small pension he managed to squeeze out of the university. And he wrote these crazy books that no one read in his lifetime. And then one day in Italy, he went crazy and was eventually taken back home. Um, but he never said another sane thing in his life. He lived about 10 more years and then died. But it was during that period of insanity that he became super famous. Um, and mm -hmm. everything he'd wanted out of life, he got when he could no longer appreciate it. So I think that's the context in which to understand his life. It was fairly tragic, but it was also really principled. He was he was not just writing from sort of the safe academic trenches about how to live. He went out there and tried to find meaning and tried to wrestle it into his philosophic books and to do so in the most passionate way he could. Um, so he really lived what he thought. It's so interesting. It, it makes me think of, um, as I was reading through the book, this Aristotle quote of there's no genius without a mixture of madness. Any any insight into that, basically, what what led this madness to come out towards the end of his life? Is there any insight into that? I mean, I don't have any special insight. It's, it's so debatable what caused it. His uh, father had some sort of mental brain-type illness or disease. Uh, it's very unclear what. So Nietzsche was always afraid that he'd inherited something, um, since from a, as a young child, he'd always had certain strange fits and things. Whatever he had seems to have gotten progressively worse over his life. So in the last few books he wrote were written just a couple of months before he really went insane. And they really do show, I think, an, an increasing mania. The focus really becomes on him, what a world-changing figure he is. The writing is still amazing. A lot of the thought is still fascinating, but he seems to be losing control. And if you read all his works sort of sequentially, you can really feel it. And it, 
it's it's really sad even to kind of witness 130 years later through his books because you can so clearly see it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, he was very concerned about the difference between control and sort of passionate engagement with life. He referred to one as the Apollonian tendency after the god Apollo and then the Dionysian tendency, which was to, to dive into life, to become a part of it, not to be self-conscious and holding yourself back, to be one with the moment. And he recognized that you didn't want either of those in its totality, but he saw himself as far too Apollonian. And he was trying to move in this direction of marrying the two forces. But I think in the end, you know, sort of sadly, this sort of Dionysian chaos, he got much more of it than he ever bargained for through Mm. this medical condition that overtook him. Well, I appreciate you sharing all that. And I want to read a a quote that you include in in the first chapter. We cannot return to the old. We have burned our boats. All that remains is for us to be brave. Let happen what may. Let us only go forward. Let us only make a move. I'm curious what that quote means to you and how this process of diving into Nietzsche and writing this book might shape the way that that you're moving forward today. So Nietzsche's talking about the real importance of being okay with where you are, of being able to launch off from wherever you've gotten to in life. Um, He's talking more culturally here, but it, it seems to apply to individuals as well. There's not much point for him in spending your life in regret, in looking backwards. And so that's what he's talking about here. We, we burned the boats. We are where we are. We found ourselves on this sort of shore. And the only question is, what are we going to do next? So spending a lot of time worrying about the past was, in his view, only useful insofar as it led to you, you know, thinking about your next step into the future. So for me, I just, I thought that was a great quote to illustrate our technological moment. There, there are very few people that I've met um, at least they're out there, but there are very few people who are really willing to rewind the clock on technology a hundred years, 200 years, 500 years, very, very few. And so I think Nietzsche's right that despite all this criticism you can find in, in books and podcasts and things today about our devices, our gadgets, how addictive technology is, criticisms of big tech, I think Nietzsche's right that the real position we find ourselves in is one in which we have to move forward and consolidate whatever we've gained and try to make the best of the situation we're in because we're not going back. To transition to this idea of of finding meaning, and maybe that's something Nietzsche is known for, some of these very memorable quotes on on finding a why and, and a purpose. How do we... How do we do that, and and maybe where does technology get in the way of finding meaning today? I think Nietzsche is often wrongly described as a nihilist. It's it's pretty easy to find descriptions of him that way. Somebody who burned everything down and sort of delighted in it. You know, God is dead and Nietzsche is dancing on his ashes. That's really an inaccurate picture. Um, Nietzsche criticizes nihilism whenever he can. I mean, his life mission was to forge meaning for himself, you know, in a world in which he didn't feel like he could believe in God anymore and this idea of a meaning that's given to us. So he felt like he had to forge one. 
I'm not clear that he ever found it. But I think he, he rightly identified the need we have for meaning and really brought it to the forefront. Because his, his real critique was, you can do anything in life if you have a goal. So you look at revolutionaries all through history. You look at any difficult thing you've been involved in, right? The, the suffering, the work you had to do, um, training for a marathon, etc. You can do it as long as there's a goal that makes it worthwhile. Once the meaning is, is sucked away, even the most minor sort of sufferings or deprivations become unendurable. What, what are we doing here, right? And when meaning is lost completely, suicide is always what's next. So for Nietzsche, some of the things he says about information, uh, mechanization, technology, you know, as I talk about in the book, um, these are things that provide ease, entertainment, and control over life to us. But what they don't often provide is any sort of meaning. And in fact, they often provide so much distraction just of our, of our time, how much of it is soaked up in text messages and Netflix and Google, um, that we might not have time to really reflect on our meaning and purpose. And that leads to a lot of people wandering around without any, maybe distracting themselves enough through their technology that they sort of, you know, sedate themselves a little bit to the point they don't have to think about it, but it breaks through. And when it does, if you have no resources for thinking about that, it can be a real crisis moment. So I think Nietzsche's Nietzsche's real gift was foregrounding this stuff about meaning. And he puts it in some really profound ways that he can do anything if he has a yes, a no, a straight line, and a goal. And so I think when you read him, you're really forced, if you're taking this at all seriously, to start thinking about your own life and to ask, do I have that? Would you mind walking us through that, what he calls that formula for happiness, a yes, a no, a straight line, and a goal? I think all those are just different ways of saying, I need a, I need a mission. Mm. Um, he needs a yes, something, something to embrace that pulls us forward through and into life. It's not enough just to have a no. He says this many, many times. He does not want to be a no-sayer to life. Someone who's just trying to get away from pain or just avoid things um, or is unsatisfied with the situation in which he's found himself. He wants to say yes to this one chance we've got that life has given us. So he needs a yes. But you also need things to kind of push off from, things that you, you know, you see that you reject, things you consider evil. They don't lead you forward. They're not enough on your own, but they help, they help guide you as you think about what your yes is. You need a straight line so that you're aiming at something, and the goal is what you're aiming at. Um, otherwise, you just feel like you're wandering around without a straight line, you know, in, in sort of a crooked path or a circle. And for someone who needs a mission, that's about the worst situation to be in. So Nietzsche does say that's the formula of his happiness. Does Nietzsche connect with this idea of, um, I I think of as you're describing this, a yes, a no, it's kind of reminding me of, um, you know, some of the ancient Greek philosophy, maybe stoicism of where that yes might be a virtue, a no might be, you know, obviously a vice. 
does he connect with with any of that of, of virtue being connected with with meaning? Yeah, yes, but this is where Nietzsche is sort of famously difficult because he critiques most virtue as being socially constructed. So there's there's not a sort of simple transcendent meaning that comes out of sort of natural law or the self or the divine realm. Um, for him, it's constructed largely. That doesn't mean it's pointless or useless. Um, Nietzsche is often referred to and refers to himself sort of playfully as the great immoralist because, because of these critiques. But he says everywhere when he's getting a little more serious that he actually he actually thinks of himself as a significant moralist. Um, he just doesn't like the morality that's always saying no. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do he said, you know, that's fine as far as it goes. But what we really need in life is the yes. And if it's all no, and there's nothing like that we're excited about and is pulling us forward, we're never going to do anything with those. We're just going to lead little kind of cramped lives that keep saying no to different sorts of, you know, small virtues and vices. Uh, he wants a big yes that kind of pulls us forward. But in contrast to some of the Stoics and, and some of the ancient Greek thinkers, Nietzsche really wants to say that we have to kind of create and find that for ourselves and that this will vary by culture. Now, this leads him into some fairly dark sayings um, in some places. I think sometimes he's overinterpreted. Many of his statements about war and things are clearly metaphorical and are really about the battle for knowledge and wisdom. But he does have some somewhat disturbing things to say that come out of this sort of relativizing philosophy. And that's why, as I say in the book, I find Nietzsche someone who's really useful and interesting to think with, but I would never be a Nietzschean disciple. And so, you know, it's convenient for me, I guess, that Nietzsche says, I wish to have no disciples. Because he wants everyone to think for themselves. If you have a system of Nietzscheanism, in which he's the leader, and you're consulting his texts like religious oracles and not thinking for yourself, you've missed the point. Hmm. How, I guess, is there anything in Nietzsche's writings that talks about the clarity of that yes? I'm thinking of someone like Seneca and others, where it's like, adopt this single rule to live by, stop wandering about. Um, anything about the clarity of the yes? This is where I, uh, personally, I feel like it is kind of left up to people to find. Mm. I think Nietzsche's right that what he says about this, but I don't think he offers much guidance because he says, and this is purposeful, he says everyone needs to find their own path and that's why he can't prescribe. Now, is that ultimately, I mean, is that true? Is that useful? Uh, I think we have to think about that for ourselves. Um, I, I would not go nearly as far as he does and because he sometimes the way he puts it makes it sound like he wants everyone sitting out there being a solitary kind of thinker and person to just kind of come up with their own meaning and goals out of the ether. And that seems really unlikely. I mean, that seems to be totally discounting um, the force and the effects of culture in many of its good ways and how we forge our meaning and values in community. And I think you can see from Nietzsche's very isolated, lonely biography, um, maybe that, that filters into his philosophy a little bit and, and I think infects it in a somewhat pernicious way. And that if you read Nietzsche and j just 
take him at face value. It's so individualist that the yes is left totally up to you. And I mean, I know I would find if it was really just up to me to find my yes in this world um, with no help from kind of community, history, tradition, culture, I'm not sure I could do it. I mean, what a burden. Mm. Yeah. It's interesting, this idea of of thinking for yourself. Many people have um, said it before Nietzsche, Socrates being one. But then there's also, he's not afraid to to disagree with some of these great thinkers from the past. You write about in the book of how he disagrees with um, Socrates' view on reason and passion and this, the chariot and the rider. Could you speak to that a bit? Yeah, so Socrates has a very famous metaphor of the, the chariot and the rider and the human soul and how it's largely the forces of sort of chaos, passion, disorder, emotion are controlled and kept, you know, they're useful, they're propulsive forces, but they're kept in check by the reasoning, rational faculty. And Nietzsche hates this idea. I mean, he he is the only, Socrates is sort of universally beloved and has been for thousands of years among the philosophical community. Nietzsche says it all went wrong with Socrates. He's the arch rationalist. And this is what he's talking about. I don't think he's actually right about this. I mean, Socrates goes on and on about this daemon he has that, you know, tells him when to do things, what not to do. But but for Nietzsche, he he, he zeroes in on what Nietzsche says, uh, Socrates says about reason. And he says, you know what, this is really where things went off track. Because Nietzsche helps, I think, in a useful way, bring us back to seeing the power of the body and the emotions, and how all those things are much more integrated into our lives. And it's not like we are disembodied kind of heads for whom these other forces are just sort of add-ons that that maybe we can kind of control to do useful things in the world. I mean, for him, these are really key parts of who we are. We are creatures of the earth, as he puts it. And to to kind of downplay um, the need to move and be in the world um, to experience our emotions as a form of thought, a, a way of processing life, which is what they are, um, is for him a great loss. And I think you're seeing that view come back to the fore today as people have reduced themselves to sitting still and looking at screens and realizing, wow, you know, something's wrong here. But also as they realize emotional thinking, emotional kind of cognition is a form of parsing out our experience in the world and is crucial to it. And, you know, you, you see this kind of attitude in books like The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt. Um, so I think Nietzsche has a lot to say that's very useful in, in that regard and, and matches what a lot of people are saying today. Does he provide any insight on how we might find this harmony between reason and passion? You know, I think if you look at his life, he never quite figured it out. But I think some of the things he wrote about definitely help us think about balancing those kind of things. So he puts a real stress on the body and movement as a way to think. He really critiques anybody who writes a book that, you know, as he says, like smells like the inkwell. Basically, it you sat in a library, Carol, reading other books, and then you wrote your book without any, without bringing in any real experience of life into it. 
He just says, you know, we can smell that and how soon we're done with that person's book. So Nietzsche does give us um, quite a few information tools, I think, that I, I talk about in one of the chapters of the book for different ways to kind of combine this, this rational side we have, but to merge it with this need we have for space, mental space in our own lives to do our own thinking and processing, but also to incorporate movement and our emotional lives. And Nietzsche really lived this out. Most of his books were written as he walked. He took long walks whenever he was healthy, hours a day, and he would write out his aphorisms on little scraps of paper he kept in his pocket. And you can still see uh, various landmarks around Switzerland and Italy today where he came up with certain ideas or doctrines because they were really rooted to these super specific places at specific moments. So Nietzsche really lived all that out. And so I think he is actually a good guide for thinking about how to combine these forces in life, even if his own attempt, as I suppose is true for all of us, was ultimately rather unsuccessful. I I love this idea of, of the wisdom of walking. I think there was a, a, a newsletter that I, I put out a while back, and it's surprising of how many different thinkers have basically said this thing, this the Nietzsche quote of all great thoughts are conceived while walking. Any any thought what thoughts of why is that? Well, I think Nietzsche's what we might call today embodied cognition is what he was talking about at the time that that even our brains are not sort of separated from the body as sort of dispassionate rational thinking faculties they are themselves embodied and they operate differently i mean who has not felt their mood lift or their thoughts change or new ideas coming to them while they shower or while they walk, right? These, these are sort of the paradigmatic examples. As people shift their bodies through space and do different things and create, you know, mental space, all sorts of new and interesting thoughts happen to them. So we'd call this today sort of embodied cognition, and Nietzsche was an early proponent of it. But it is a, you know, just as a thought experiment of this, this idea of walking you think of uh, Montaigne and, and so many of these other people, you know, walking that difference compared to, as, as you were mentioning earlier of this person that is locked in a room or some, you know, some library with no, no sunlight. It's uh it's fascinating. It, it's almost seems as something we constantly need to be reminded of. Yeah. I mean, I, Nietzsche brings it all back to kind of first principles when he looks around at the universe, that life, life itself, the universe itself is motion. When motion ceases, right, the life ceases, um, essentially the lack of motion is absolute zero. Everything's frozen, cold, dead. And he applies that all the way up the scale to, you know, the whole universe, but even to people. So I think you, you walk around outside. He talks about you can't have a... A good thought without the muscles also enjoying a feast, right? You're you're really depriving a key, well, more than a part of your body, the whole body of really um, this thing that is good and joyful for it, and you're really just trying to use your mind and essentially isolate or wall off everything else. And so I think what he sees all this walking doing is integrating our whole person. You're still thinking. 
but you're also using your muscles. The blood is flowing. You're experiencing and acting in and sort of against the world as you push off from gravity, as you move through space. But you're also encountering life in its sort of serendipity and its its givenness. You know, even as he would take walks, he would run into situations which he could not control. But you know, one of the key aspects of life lived almost entirely online is the way in which we are ultimately in control of it all. Mm. If, if you don't like a chat or an email or a video conversation, you close the window and that's it. But when you encounter another person in the world face to face, it's not always that easy. And so all these things about life and its movement come together for him in this kind of combination of physical activity and thinking. So for him, that was walking because you can think, right? If you're, mm. if you're exercising or, or you're operating at a really high level, or you're climbing a mountain, you may not have any space to think. But walking provides, you know, the time and the space to do both the moving and the thinking. And as you mentioned there, you talked about the universe and control. And there's this popular concept that he's known for this amor fati or love of fate. What are your thoughts there, Nate? Could you speak to that a bit? So this gets back to the control I'm talking about. And I think we are so conditioned today, largely through technology, because that is one of its key promises, is control over the natural world or things that would otherwise happen to us that we would be subject to. And Nietzsche says, you know, that's great as far as it goes. He wasn't against the technologies of the time and things and, of course, made use of them himself. But he just didn't think these things were ultimate. And what he really wanted to cultivate was what he calls amor fati, the, the love of fate, which is really an openness to life in all its givenness, and it's not a backward-looking regret. I mean, he takes this so far that he wants to say he would be okay with whatever's happened to him in life, even if he had to repeat it infinitely. Like an infinite series of your life lived over and over in exactly the same way, he could still say yes to that. I mean, that is a radical you know, sort of acceptance of life and the things that happen to you, especially for someone whose life wasn't that awesome in a lot of ways, right? You might think this would be a lot easier if everything was going super well and your health was great and you had a great marriage and family and he didn't have any of those things. And he still thought, this is where I want to be. Because what it what it means is you're not looking backward. You're not constantly engaged in regret and self-pity you know, no matter how bad your life, no matter how many times he's on his bed with whatever illness that he couldn't understand, the doctors who couldn't cure him, the opium he kept overdosing on, um, he still wanted to say there's something amazing about that, that, that any of this happens at all. And I want to say yes to it on that level. Mm-hmm. And I think for people obsessed with the control that our devices give us, who live sort of indoor lives filtered through screens... That's a hard message to hear, but it might be useful to reflect on. I don't always know how far to take it, though. Um, there's a way in which that yes saying to life can be twisted, I think, into resignation in the face of evil, right? Like uh, the poor or the oppressed should just, you know, say yes to life. This is what happens to you, right? I don't think he's saying that at all. But I think what he's saying is even as these things happen to you, 
you know, you can still be amazed that life is happening at all. And he wants to, he wants to be the kind of person who can live forward looking so much that he can continually say yes to what's coming towards him. How we implement that in everyday life, what that means for our politics, et cetera, very difficult. But I think for people within this technological moment, it's worth pondering. It's so interesting. And I, I have to say, I'm a, I'm a fan of this, of this concept and it's come up on the podcast probably probably a few times, but it's interesting. It's something that it's apparent. It seems like he's thought about this extremely deeply. This wasn't just the passing, you know, thought. But uh, I, I spent my adult life in the military, and there's this concept that is embraced, I guess, of called embrace the suck. You know, when things are, are difficult, you kind of embrace it. And I even, um, you know, during during my time serving, it, you know, there's a big difference to me between embracing the suck and this amor fati. You know, as you mentioned, there's evil in the world and there's things that you need to stand up to. But it's like, you know, what approach puts you in the best position to actually stand up and resist whatever injustice might be in that particular moment but then once that moment is passed it goes into completely outside of your control you know it's this idea of not wanting anything to be different you know behind you well it's completely out of your control even if you did want it to be different there's nothing you can do about it but in that moment there is an opportunity it seems yeah i mean i look at nietzsche is really saying along the lines of what you just said, like looking at life and saying, yes, I accept the reality in front of me. Not I accept all the oppression, but I accept this oppression that I see, or I accept these things about my life or where I'm at. I accept that they are true. To me, that's a clear-sighted look at what is happening. And there are ways in which you cannot do that. You can deny, you can drink yourself you know, into a stupor, you can... Um, find yourself in disinformation rabbit holes that, you know, twist. But if you can see clear eye what reality looks like, that is sort of saying yes and acceptance of kind of this life that's coming toward you. And mm -hmm. like you said, I think that's what gives you then a clear eyed sense of what I really see in front of me, the stance from which you can move forward and take action for or against things that you see around you. And that's where his, emphasis on mission, meaning, goal, a straight line, a yes and a no are so important. So I think those things kind of interlock. It's just a curious question for you. Is there any contradiction potentially between this idea? It seems very rational. It seems very reason oriented of looking at reality. And then you come back to this harsh disagreement with, with Socrates over the reason and passion thing. Any contradiction there? Um, I don't think so. You know, when he talks about the Dionysian and Nietzsche wanted more of the Dionysian in his life, that Western culture led, led by Socrates had kind of gone off the rails. We were way too much in our own heads. But one of the key aspects of the Dionysian approach to life, and of course Dionysus was the Greek god of wine and celebration, um, but one of the key aspects of Dionysus is losing your sort of self-consciousness into the moment. And in doing that, 
you feel less like a piece of the world that has sort of separated itself out from life and you now are looking at it around you as an outsider. You lose that. You, you re-enter into kind of this unified stream, right? This is a feeling that is often sought in religion, in meditation, this sort of unity with the world, um, this mindfulness, so a unity with the present moment. And I think that's what Nietzsche was looking for there. I don't think, yeah, I don't see a disagreement between that and um, like Amor Fati. I think being in the present moment is where you can see clearly from. But if you're lost mentally in the past or the future, um, it becomes more difficult to see reality and to accept it, right? If you're mm-hmm. caught up, if you spend most of your life caught up in regret about the past, for instance, you may have difficulty not seeing what's happening around you through that lens, that maybe distorted lens. So for Nietzsche, I think these things go together. I, I don't think he's, I don't think he's self-contradictory there, but I would also say he's really not trying to forge a new system, right? There's no, there's no Nietzscheanism because he has a great quote about how every, um, every systematizer is basically someone who lacks integrity because every system in, in a world this complicated will have to distort bits of reality to kind of make things fit the system. And so Nietzsche was not afraid of self-contradiction or, as he would look at it, different perspectives, right? And at different times, some of these may be more useful than others. I love that. Yeah, you write in the book, it's not a system, it's not a program, it has no rules. It's a constellation of goals and and values. Really, really helpful. Uh, Also, I, I love the fact that you ended the book with a reading list. There's a lot of content from Nietzsche. It's very difficult to know. Uh, where to start, but you list uh, suggesting starting with uh, Twilight of Idols. Why Why is that? So this is one of Nietzsche's later books. It has the great virtue of being fairly short. Uh, it's one of his best written. It's fascinating to read. I mean, the first time you read it, if you have no other grounding in Nietzsche, you'll be baffled by half the, oh, what is he talking about? <laughs> but it's written in such a fabulous style that you might want to find out. And it really is sort of an overview of everything he's been saying in his other books, in his developed philosophy. Now, it's one of these books he wrote in the last few months before he went insane. So there are some of those tendencies toward, you know, things maybe get out of control a little bit, but it's it's a really good place to start and just see if I want any more of this, if any of the ideas in here connect with me. Um, yeah, so I think that's a good place to start for people. Well, that's great. And I've really enjoyed the conversation. Our time has flown by here. Uh, A standard wrap-up question that we ask most guests is something around the idea of how do you define or think about wisdom in daily life, Nate? I think there's lots of ways to answer that question. I just pick out one aspect that comes out of some of the work I've been doing in Nietzsche, and that's turning knowledge into practice, uh, moving the ideas you believe in out of your mind and into the body and the world. And Nietzsche has a lot to say about how information can distract us from this task. And he really calls us to do things like restrict our information intake, to spend a lot of time going over information again, re-watching things, re-listening to things, re-reading 
books that have really been meaningful to us, to give more of our time to that, that sort of curated, to really curate our information environment. Um, and even to give up books, movies, and things for a time altogether to create space to think and to process. So I talk about this a lot in the book, but I think this is very useful for us in a world in which information really does pile up around us like garbage. It's, it's everywhere, and sometimes we get addicted to it. Um, the downside of that is that we don't take these things that we know, all this information that's out there, and really internalize it into our lives in such a way that we're living it out um, that it's really affecting us at a deep level. Sometimes it remains superficial and in our heads. And so I think Nietzsche gives us some tools for thinking about how to turn that knowledge into something far more practical. And I think, I think that's a good working definition of wisdom in ordinary life. So good. Uh, I love it. Where do you point people interested in learning more about the book and, and your work in the world, Nate? Yeah, so I, I uh, write and edit for Ars Technica. Um, we're a Condé Nast tech and science publication. You can find us on the web. And the book is In Emergency Break Glass, which I guess you can find at any good bookseller. All right, love it. We'll link everything in the show notes for the listeners. Nate Anderson, thank you so much for taking the time to come on In Search Wisdom. I appreciate it. Thank you. It was great. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.